You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on life that Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Now, here is Stephen Olford on Today in the Word radio. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, and uh, it's only one verse that follows that tremendous teaching on prayer that we dealt with yesterday, 7 through 11, and it's only one verse. Let's read it all together. Verse 12, therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. As you're going to discover that qualification, this is the law and the prophets, is what makes that text come alive with all the significance we're going to look at today. Now, you remember we've been dealing with freedom laws for kingdom life. We are men and women of the kingdom. And if Jesus is king, then he's ruler. And if he's ruler, he has rules, he has laws. And we're to submit to those laws, not in our own strength, in a legalistic way, but by the power of the indwelling Christ through the Holy Spirit, fleshing out these laws. And we've dealt with some of the great issues that I believe the Lord Jesus meant us to understand down through the centuries. The priority in life, life's priority, anxiety, which gnaws at us constantly, maturity, and then, of course, yesterday, reality. We are no more and no less than what we are in the presence of God, a life of reality. Now this morning, life's morality, and it's all tied up in this verse, whatever you want men to do to you, you also do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this one verse, if you studied carefully the Sermon on the Mount from 5 through 7, is the summation, really, of all that the Lord Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the substance of the Old Testament and summarizes not so much the first and greatest commandment, which is love to God, but the second and next commandment, which is love to man. Dr. William Barclay puts it this way, this verse very probably is the most universally famous thing that Jesus ever said. It is the topmost peak of social ethics and the Everest of all ethical teaching. And I believe he's dead right and accurate in that statement. In actual fact, this golden rule is what James, the brother of our Lord, calls the royal law. Jot that down in James 2 and 8, the royal law. It is the, practically, the practical application of thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself. And it assumes that if we love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind, and all our strength, which is the vertical relationship, 
then inevitably we're going to flow out in love to our neighbor. So the significance of the placing of that statement mustn't be overlooked. Remember, the verses that immediately precede that verse have to do with our relationship with God, the life of reality that we were talking about yesterday. If I am in the presence of God, all that he intends that I should be, no more, no less, as we said yesterday, and that vertical relationship is right, then we'll follow our love to our neighbor, which is what the Bible knows as true morality. The world hasn't a clue as to what that really means. And that's the pity of it. Dr. Billheimer, whom I'm going to quote quite a lot today, says this, and these words have really convicted me afresh this morning. All spiritual growth is growth primarily in one thing, agape love. All spiritual immaturity is immaturity primarily in love. All spiritual failure is failure primarily in love. To be lost is to be lost to love. And increased agape love is the only thing that will unite the church, and we might add, and win the world. So what we have to deal with this morning is something perhaps more penetrating and powerful than anything we've talked about yet this week. Now, while it's absurd to say that all of the Old Testament is digested and bulverized, as we say in England, in one single sentence here, it is true, it is true that this second commandment, which Jesus said is, love thy neighbor as thyself, is really gathered up in this one sentence wherever you look in the Old Testament. It's life's morality. And I want us to look at it again as freedom laws. Law number one, true morality is personal love to others. Now that sounds very simplistic, but you wait until I finished. Personal love to others. Whatever you want men to do to you, you also do to them. Now this is very personal, very personal language. Let's look at it again. Whatever you want men to do to you, you do also to them. You see, it's so easy to love people universally. Right? But so hard to love people individually. C.S. Lewis has a powerful and penetrating little word here. He says this, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individually men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in a general way may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That hurts. But you know, it's so true. It's so true. 
Now, the immediate context and the Bible generally make it clear that this personal love goes in two directions. One, love to our brother, and two, love to our neighbor. Remember, we're not talking about love to God now. That's been dealt with already. First of all, love to our brother. That's the church, of course. Then love to our neighbor, and that goes as far as the east is from the west and includes our enemies as well, as we shall see. Let's look at that together, first of all. We must personally love our brother. I cannot, if he's rich or poor, or whether he's black or white, or whoever he is, we must personally love our brother. Whatever you want men to do to you, you also do to them. And included in that word them, of course, is the whole Christian brotherhood. Members of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we couldn't interpret this and understand it really well unless we delved into some of our Lord's statements on this. You remember how he said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Then John in his epistle pursues the same when he says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And again, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. I went over those words again and again this morning. And I want to tell you, they're very searching. Now, so as to understand what Jonathan, John is speaking about here and what our Lord is teaching here, I want you to notice two aspects of this love. This personal love must be expressed morally and materially. Personal love expresses itself morally and materially within two perimeters. Somebody has said and said well that the love, which is agape love, gives and forgives. And when you've said that, you've said everything. It gives and forgives. Now let's look at this under those two headings. Personal love forever gives, morally and materially. John continues, by this we know love, because he, God, lay down his life for us, obviously in Christ. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here is a description of self-giving, sacrificial love. Self-emptying love. This is the moral expression of divine love. We can't look at the cross and understand what happened when he was nailed to that wood and bled from his head, his hands, his feet, and side if we don't understand the moral character. This is the basis of morality, the moral character of redemptive love. He gave himself completely. He gave himself for brothers and sisters, whoever they are, whatever their country, whatever their culture, whatever their color. That's 
love giving morally. But love gives materially. It is a love which gives morally, yes, and materially, for the passage goes right on to say, but whoso has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? Divine love is not only spiritual in its manifestation, it is practical in its manifestation. In fact, the supreme example again is our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is personal love in action. The Lord Jesus doesn't ask us to do what he didn't do. He laid aside all the glory and all the riches of heaven and came to sheer unbelievable poverty in order to demonstrate love in action. Nothing could be more personal or practical than the self-giving of our Lord Jesus Christ in order that you and I could be made rich. But love not only gives, that's one aspect of it. Love forever forgives. Forgives. And I think this is probably the greatest message for the Christian church today. I doubt if there's anything wrong in the Christian church today that couldn't be solved if only we forgived. Jesus taught that if you forgive men their trespasses, right in this context, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These words, as you know, are not only part of this context, but are the basis of knowing a continuous fellowship with God and therefore the release of redemptive love through us. Love forgives. The Master demonstrated this quality of love all through his ministry. I love that story when he looked at that man paralyzed, brought in by four men who had faith to believe that God could do something in his life that nobody else could do. And they ripped up the roof of the house and let this dear boy down through that hole to the feet of the Lord Jesus. And instead of saying, now then, stand up and walk, Jesus looked at him and said, son, your sins be forgiven you. And they reasoned in their minds what manner of man this was or what manner of saying this was. And Jesus had to tell them, the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. The first thing was forgiveness, then healing. Forgiveness, then healing. And I'm sure no one here could possibly not think of what I was thinking of this morning. The supreme demonstration of forgiving love was when the Lord Jesus was led up Golgotha's hill and without any struggle gave his hands and his feet. And as they were hammering the iron through his quivering flesh, hands that had been laid on the heads of little children, broken bread and fish and fed the poor, hands that had touched the leper, even as they were doing that, he said, Father, Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's forgiving love. 
Was Paul thinking about that when he said, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Without doubt, the ability to forgive is the greatest demonstration of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. No wonder the little blind boy, when asked to define forgiveness, replied with a stroke of genius, forgiveness is the fragrance that flowers breathe when they're trampled on. That's personal love, folks. We live in a generation, in a climate today, that totally caricature the biblical concept of love. Most, most times the word love is used for lust or something worse. But this is biblical love. This is the basis of true morality. We must love our brothers personally. But it goes further than that. We must love our neighbors personally. We must personally love the neighbor. Whatsoever you want men to do to you, you do also to them. Quickly, turn to the second law. True morality is not only personal love. True morality is purposeful love to others. And here is dynamite. Because here is the qualification. Whatsoever you do to men and you want them to do to you, do it for this is the law and the prophets. Now that's very significant. And you'll see why in just a moment. When we talk about living out the golden rule, we're aware at once of the notions we have today all across our country. We talk about the golden rule, the golden rule, the golden rule. People in the world are clueless as to what this means, and many Christians are not far behind in their ignorance. Jesus qualified this golden rule with the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. And the application and implication of the golden rule would be disastrous without that word, the law and the prophets. Let me tell you why. Tolstoy has warned through an entry in his diary that altruism, if taken by itself and followed to its logical conclusion or issue, ends in disaster. You say, how do you make that out? The point is that the golden rule can be obeyed selfishly. For example, for example, you can follow the golden rule to satisfy your own desires with a totally ulterior motive. But this is wrong. This is the wrong use of the golden rule. You can say, yes, I'll do to others exactly what I want them to do to me, but you're doing it because you know that's going to serve your purpose. And that's done all over the world. That's done in the highest levels of corruption in government all over the world today. But Jesus says, no way. If you're going to fulfill this golden rule, it must be according to the law 
and the prophets. True morality is purposeful love to others. For love without purpose is neither responsive to God's word or redemptive in God's work. And that's the meaning of the law of the prophets. Let's look at it for a moment. Purposeful love is always responsive to God's word. In other words, if I'm going to love, I'm going to love as God says I ought to love. And God says there are certain very serious restrictions and limitations. For this is the law and the prophets. It's important as well as instructive to observe that love for others is legislated in Scripture. It's legislated in Scripture. Come back to the great first and second commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now let's stop there. How many people who follow the golden rule love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. You just stop there for a moment. That's the law and the prophets. Oh, I love him and I'll do something good because I know he's going to do something back for me. No, says God. First of all, you're to love God. Your relationship with God. And you know, when you analyze that, that means loving God with reality. My heart, my heart. And that searches me through and through because Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is what? Far from me. Far from me. Van Tavner, we've quoted so often these days around the tables, once stood up just before I spoke and his opening statement was this. He said, on Sunday morning, right around about 11 o'clock, more lies are spoken by Christian people than at any time throughout the whole of the week. We stand to our feet and sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And he says, it's a lie. It's a lie. Because we aren't loving God with all our heart. Oh, with all our soul, with all our soul, that's the responsiveness of love, real soul love, or our mind, we're not in the word, or in our strength, we don't give our time and talents and tithes. So Jesus said, that's the first commandment, if a second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, if you love God like that, you're not going to be ulterior in the way you love your neighbor. And of course, from that flows such statements as this. Husbands, love your wives. Brethren, love one another. Christian folks, love the church, the brotherhood. And listen, love your enemies. Love your enemies. The whole thrust of the law and the prophets is that love should be man's response to God's initiative. God has revealed a purpose for our lives, and in his word, the law of the prophets spell it out. He has set forth whom we should love, how we should love, and nothing is led to natural motivation or manipulation. Take, for instance, just the question of loving our wives, just as an illustration. When Paul says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit's 
Husbands, love your wives. I tell you, he is saying something which is dynamite. Dynamite. Have you ever analyzed that in context? Interestingly enough, I don't know anywhere where wives are told specifically to love their husbands. That's taken for granted in the deeply spiritual sense. And you know why? Because love always reciprocates. And if a husband really loves his wife, there's no problem about the wife. What is Paul saying here? He says, husband, love your wives. A husband's love must be sacrificial in its measure. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Do you know that's mind-boggling? You've got to close your eyes and you've got to go down that Via de la Rosa, out through the north gate. You've got to carry the cross with your Savior up to Golgotha's hill. You've got to give your hands, your feet, your body to the nails, to the crown of thorns. And you've got to allow every single drop of blood out of your body to fall to the ground. Then you fulfill the commandment to love your wife. That's sacrificial love. That's sacrificial love. Not because I feel a glow, or I want the sex experience, or I want the security of the home, or I want somebody to care of my home. No! Love your wife, even as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. But go deeper. A husband's love must be spiritual in its motive. My, that's a ton. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her and wash her with the water of the word. A Christian wife should be prettier, more romantic, more beautiful, more spiritual as she grows older. Why? Because she's becoming more and more like Jesus. Why? Because as prophet, priest, and king in the home, the husband is ministering to her and the family from the word, by the spirit, and that woman is becoming more and more and more sanctified. Because what Jesus is doing with the church, the husband should do with his wife. But go one dimension deeper. A husband's love must be sympathetic in its manner. Men ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Look at the way you look after yourself, the way you shave, the way you do your hair, the way you look after your body. And if you were to be nailing a picture to the wall and you missed one nail and hit the other nail, immediately your brain would say, listen, there's a call for need there. And the whole body would immediately converge on helping that one poor little member that's been wounded. Now, says Paul, that's the nature of the love I'm talking about for your wife. Her material calls, her emotional calls, her spiritual calls, her sexual calls, her entire being should have response at once from a sympathetic husband. See what we mean? by the law and the prophets. You love according to how God says you to love. 
That's responsiveness to the word of God in terms of love. But in addition to that, purposeful love is always not only responsive to the word of God, but redemptive to the work of God. For this is the law and the prophets. God's redemptive love as revealed in the law of the prophets. It's different in nature and degree from all other loves. All other loves, by the way, are negative. Did you know that? In all the history of the world, all other loves are negative. That's been proved. All other loves are negative. And this was so in our Lord's time. Indeed, there is a sense, listen carefully, and I'm dealing with intelligent, thinking people here this morning, there is a sense in which the golden rule was not new. It wasn't new with the Lord Jesus. Oh, no. There were sayings like this all around, all around. But the amazing thing about them, all the other ones were negative. All the other ones were negative. For example, Hillel, Hillel, the master Hebrew teacher said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to yourself. Notice negative. Socrates, the Greek philosopher, declared, what stirs your anger when done to you by others, that do not to others. Socrates. Aristotle, another Greek philosopher, wrote, we should bear ourselves toward others as we would that they should bear to us. Again, with a negative tone. Confucius, the Chinese teacher, put it this way. What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And you know, I could go on with 20 or 30 other quotations. Only Jesus pronounced the golden rule in that redemptive sense. And the reason is simple. The golden rule is the expression of agape love, or what David Watson, to whom I've made a lot of references, calls Jesus' love. Jesus' love. And in a book that is now in this country called Called and Commissioned, he describes aspects of that love. He says, this love is one sincere, Romans 12 and 9. It has an open heart and an open hand and knows nothing of manipulation and deceit. Next, it's generous, 2 Corinthians 8.24, marked by sacrificial giving of time, money, energy, gifts to anyone in need. It is active, 1 John 3.18, backing verbal expressions of love with loving acts. It's forbearing and forgiving, Ephesians 4.2, turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to faults of others. It is unifying, Ephesians 4.3, always working to make peace and heal divisions. It is positive love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, believing the best about others, not expecting or fearing the worst. It is sensitive love, Romans 14.15, careful not to say anything that will cause others to stumble. It is uplifting and upbuilding love. Ephesians 4, 15, the truth may wound, but speaking the truth in love will heal and edify. Jesus' love summarizes all that we believe and do as Christians. Isn't that something? Now, there are three areas, of course, in which Redemptive love operates. Three areas. Those three areas are found from Genesis to Revelation. One, of course, is the church. The other is the home, and the other is the world. 
purposeful love works redemptively in the church. In his little book that I have referred to again and again, Love Covers, Paul Bilheimer writes, the only power that will bring unity in the body of Christ is the power of agape love. Adequate love for Jesus enables one to accept and love those whom he accepts and loves regardless of their opinions in non-essentials. And then I love this sentence. We shall never be united by conceptual truth, church, polity, liturgy, or any canon of confession of faith. Only agape love will bring us together. With a sufficient flow of love in the body, all divisions will diminish in significance. Increasing love will cover all differences concerning non-essentials to salvation and bring the oneness which Christ prayed for. And I've already shared with you the burden of our Savior's heart. Father, make them one that the world may believe that you sent me. In fact, I was sharing at the table the other night, again, the wise words of my beloved friend Vance Havner. He says, when love comes in, it's like a great, great wave, the swell of an ocean. And when love comes in, all the rocks disappear, all the differences disappear, all the demarcations and divisions disappear. And we are floating, we are swimming in the fullness of God's love. The problem is, he said, when the tide recedes, for when the tide recedes, every shrimp has its own puddle. How we need to sing and pray. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. All right, then, in the church. Purposeful love works redemptively in the home. The secret of powerful love is discovered in the secret of prevailing prayer. And as we saw yesterday, that prayer must be the prayer of persistency, fidelity, and expectancy. But those very verses refer back to an earlier passage, you remember, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And these verses are linked indissolubly. We're going to look at them very, very quickly. And what does Jesus say to us about our prayer life in chapter 6, 6. We must have privacy, or what we say in England, privacy in prayer. When you pray, go into your what? Room or closet. You and I know that where there's no place to pray, very often there's no peace to pray, right? This is where the devil more often than not beats us. We must plan our prayer time, and this involves discipline. Our Lord used a hillside or a garden for prayer. Peter found a quiet place on a housetop. And we could go on and on and on. Incidentally, by the way, the Greek word for closet or room there is storehouse. It can be translated little den, but storehouse. And I've got news for you. It's only when you shut yourself alone with God that you discover God's real storehouse of love. 
We must have privacy in prayer. We must have liberty in prayer. Shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret. Now, it's well known by scholars and by you who know your Bibles that all prayer was vocal prayer, audible prayer. That's why Jesus condemned the Pharisees who stood at corner streets and prayed so loud that they drew attention to themselves. And that beautiful language in prayer and the liturgy in prayer impressed a lot of people. But Jesus said it never went anywhere. It was just vain repetition. So if you really want to be real with God, you want to get into a place where you can be absolutely shut off from any distraction and you can talk to God right out of your heart, even aloud, and not be in any way affected thereby. We need liberty in prayer. And most of us, I find in my life, that's possibly the greatest restriction, to just be free in prayer. Sometimes heaven knows and I know Heather. We have our prayer times together and our devotional times together. And she's an absolute sweetheart and understands my needs. But when I really want to do business with God for this character, this chap here, this fellow called Stephen Olford, I want absolute privacy and liberty in prayer. And notice... We must have victory in prayer. Your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And this is what our fathers used to call victorious praying. Victorious praying. Only those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we're talking about a dimension of love which isn't just going to come automatically. It comes when we know what I call the secret of powerful love. And that's the closed door, the quiet place of prayer. But with the secret, in conclusion, there's the spirit of powerful love. You remember how in this very passage, Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to them that ask him? And remember Luke's version, Luke's version. Luke's version is even more specific. If then, being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to them that ask him. You say, why did he mention the Holy Spirit there? Because he's going to talk about the golden rule. He's going to talk about the life of morality. What's at the heart of morality? Love. Where does love come from? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love. You know, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, I think it is, is the first kind of hint of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Then the next one is in chapter 5. We'll touch that in a moment. And then we come to chapter 6, which has more mentions, of course, of the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in all of the Bible. In fact, I know a wonderful man of God called Dr. Skevington Wood who's written a whole book on that one chapter 8 of Romans calling it Paul's Pentecost. But the verse in chapter 5 is very interesting. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I once read a sermon by Alexander McLaren on that, and he says that verb there, that verb there is totally mistranslated. The love of God is shed abroad. The word shed abroad is a very powerful verb. It doesn't describe a placid lake that mirrors stars at night. 
that word shed abroad is flash flood. The love of God is flash flooded through our lives by the Holy Spirit. Now, you folks down in Florida know a little bit about that, but I was born in a country in Angola where we had flash floods. There's total silence, everything still, even the little insects begin to take cover because they somehow feel something's coming. And out of a blue, wonderful sky, suddenly the clouds gather from, it seems, nowhere. The lightning flashes, the thunder roars, and suddenly there's a flash flood. And I've seen trees, I've seen cattle, I've seen shacks literally carried away by a flash flood. That's the word. That's the word. I want to tell you, if you want to see all the debris in our churches, in our lives, in our homes, swept away clean, let the flash, flash flood of God's love course through your life. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the golden rule. And it's according, listen, to the law and the what? The prophets. Have you ever heard of Zechariah? Have you ever heard of Zechariah 4.6? What does Zechariah 4.6 say? Not by might, nor by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how we're to love. That's how we're to love. Yes, says Jesus, the golden rule is all right. The royal law is all right. But only according to the law and the prophets. Because no one can love like you're supposed to love in the golden rule or the royal law, unless you know the agape love of God flash flooding through your life. That's why Jesus said, listen, you're my disciples, I've taught you, I want you to be my witnesses, but don't you open your mouths until you've waited in prayer, that's the secret, until you've experienced the Spirit and ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And ye shall be, be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. We're told that when the emperors of Rome had their big games, and some of them very gory games to be sure, just in order to make the atmosphere beautiful and to release something that made everybody happy, the emperor would give a signal. And suddenly, except for that warning to those who were watching carefully for the emperor's signal, something would happen that hadn't happened before. Great jars hidden all around the amphitheater, sealed, would suddenly be punctured. And out of those punctured jars would come the most gorgeous, fragrant odors that would sweep the whole place and everybody would feel clean and happy and begin to laugh and enjoy the games. No one was aware of those jars until they were punctured. A freshness and fragrance. And our lives are just like sealed jars. Indeed, it's tragically possible even for Christian women and men to have sealed jars. The Holy Spirit shut up, as it were, in a little compartment of our lives. But not released. Not released. He's 
quenched his greed. He's not flowing like we heard last night. He's not flowing like the river of God, which is full. But once he's released, everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. That great theologian Kuehler says that a living, loving Christian is the most unanswerable argument for Christianity. Are we living, loving Christians? Are we personal, purposeful, and powerful in our love? Is the golden rule fleshed out in our daily behavior? Only the Holy Spirit can answer these questions as we yield to the sovereignty of the Spirit in our lives and release it, release it, release it in that overflow. The secret, Jesus said, your heavenly Father gives to those who ask him. Very simply, this means make your request, ask in faith. Give your response, thank him in hope. Know your release, serve him in love. This and this alone is a life of true morality. Amen? You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled Life's Morality that Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us next week as we bring you a five-part series of messages that John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.